The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Maybe something to highlight is how critically important culture is and building culture and hiring the right people. And the other thing is probably communication, that everything succeeds or fails with right communication and setting up the right processes for communication and making sure that people speak up you don't have too much of a hierarchical structure, but people, since you're a small group of people and there are lots of different competencies that everyone can really work within their competency. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 5, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I am sure that you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a return visit from Nico Kiyoja, the CEO of NetLed. He spent the first part of his career in CEA as a grower and has spent the last decade in high-tech CEA and vertical farming development. In that episode, we discussed how the industry is growing and the opportunities that exist for competitors within the industry to share the advances to benefit everyone. It's very nice to have Nico back on and share the exciting developments that are happening at NetLed, especially with their new Vera farming technology. So make sure you check that out if you haven't already. Hey, Terry, I'm dropping in for a quick reminder that Indoor Ag Tech returns to Brooklyn, New York on June 23rd to 24th. And it's a gathering of the world's leading growers, retailers, investors, seed companies, and technology providers to meet, network, and cultivate, pun intended, new commercial relationships. Key themes covered during the two days will be regenerating cities, tackling labor shortages, reducing costs and energy usage, plant science and seed optimization, beyond leafy greens, finance and investment, scalability and profitability, communicating with the consumer, and collaboration and partnership. It's going to be a jam-packed two days of content and connection. Can't wait to see you all there. IndoorAgTechNYC.com and let them know Harry sent you. This week, I get to speak to Mac Lossel. He's the CEO of Agrolution. Max has a vision of bringing CEA and vertical farming to every home and to allow everyone to grow their own nutritious plants. In this episode, we discuss the work 
Max and his co-founder have done to develop a viable personal vertical farming system. And he shares his affinity for entrepreneurship and discusses the origins of thought for food. We talk about uh, AgriLution's offerings, including the Plant Cube, and really enjoyed this conversation with Max, getting to know a little bit about what's happening in his world. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up for Vertical Farming Weekly. Each week, our team member Noah brings you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. You can sign up at verticalfarmingweekly.com. If you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Regular listeners already know that I'm more than happy to read those out on future episodes. So we're due for another round. So if you haven't already and you've been thinking about it, pause, ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Love to hear what you have to say. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Max. So Max Lossel, co-founder and CEO of AgriLution, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Harry. Where's home for you? Usually in Munich, Germany, but I'm calling in from Italy at the moment. Okay. Is uh, travel related to business or personal? More personal, I would say. (laughs) Okay. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Munich in Germany, where the business is also located. But when I was nine years old, we moved to China with the family because my mom was doing rural development work there, mainly helping women and, and smallholder farmers on the countryside. So I spent three years of my childhood in China. And then, yeah, I think that had a big impact on my life also leading up to entering the vertical farming space at some point because at a young age i was already confronted with the topic of people not really having access to to the bare necessities of life so on the weekends my my parents often took my little sister and i to the countryside to some of the projects that they were working on and so i was yeah faced with people living in extreme poverty and not having access to food or shelter or water and on the other side, seeing the complete contrast in, in, in Western Europe, where you have the abundance of everything and you walk into the supermarket, like in the US, and you just pick whatever you want from the shelf. And then having that contrast and having experienced both sides at an early age, I think just stuck with me and got me thinking a lot and made me realize that I'm just very privileged growing up in, in Western Europe having had the chance to do whatever I wanted. And then, yeah, but after a couple of years, we moved back from China and I finished school back in Germany. And afterwards, I was sort of always looking to find a way to give back, given my consciousness of my situation and didn't really know what to do, where to start. So I started reading a ton of books and traveled a lot spent some time in Spain, then moved to New Zealand to work for Greenpeace. And that was an interesting experience as well, because I sort of got to understand how closely related all of our global challenges are to agriculture and the way we used to do conventional farming or the way we do the majority of farming today. And how that on the one side helped a lot of people to move out of poverty and you know we have we were able to feed billions of people and on the other side we were or still are doing agriculture at the expense of our planetary resources and at the expense of biodiversity and so 
that then got me to read more books into that topic. And somehow I stumbled across the book, The Vertical yeah. Farm by, by Dixon de Pommier. So that was like, I think, 11 years ago or so. That, that probably opened up a whole new world because the same thing happened for me because I I read a book called Abundance by Peter Diamandis where he mentioned Dixon's book. And so I read that and that that started this whole journey of, of the podcast and, and having these conversations. So after Greenpeace, you went to work uh, as, a, as a trainee at, at Plant Lab. And, and that was actually, it's probably tied into what you experienced in the book. But can you talk a little bit about what it was that was stirred inside of you when you read uh, Dixon's book and in terms of like possibilities or, or how that sort of started to put you on this different path? Yeah, I really liked it because it gives a very general overview of the recent history of humanity and how we moved through the agricultural revolutions and started forming societies and all of that. It also talks about the problems or the downside of, of doing conventional agricultural practices at the expense of our planetary resources and how it's just not sustainable if we continue like this, and especially with the sort of limited comparing carrying capacity on this planet, we have to sort of find a way to live within the planetary boundaries. And so I, I was just so inspired by, on the one side, drawing that, yeah, the, the grim reality that we're living in, and on the other side, having that potential vision in the future of doing agriculture more in line with our planetary boundaries and uh, more doing it more sustainable and closer to the actual point of consumption. So closer to cities or in cities where, where the majority of us live. And I was so inspired by that book and by the potential that vertical farming promised that I just sent Dixon an email and he replied and we started exchanging thoughts. And I actually moved to the Netherlands uh, based on his recommendation because he <laughs> said, hey, why don't wow. you why don't you try to get an internship at Plant Lab? They're like the leaders or were the leaders back then. And so I tried, but they declined. But then I found out that their business was located on a, on a university campus. And so I applied for the university and yeah. then I moved to the Netherlands to study there. How was that experience? Because you also, you know, and you can help me about here with the timing a little bit, but you became a, a youth ambassador for vertical farming as well. That's true, yeah. So I, I think I read the book 2012, beginning of 2012 or end of 2011. And I think end of 2011. Then I moved to the Netherlands in 2012 to study already in my first semester. Yeah, I sort of started doing all the activities within my curriculum where we could do project-based topics. I always did something related to vertical farming. And then I started building a network and started reaching out to all the people which back then it was like a handful of people really active in the space. So I had a very international network, like people from the US, like reaching out to Henry Gordon Smith and actually getting, got connected to him through Dixon back then. And then had contacts in Japan and in Europe and with the German aerospace agency, like all of the ones that were sort of starting out to oh, do wow. this and, and had somehow started to do something in the vertical farming space. and. That then led to the founding of the Association for Vertical Farming, because all of those contacts that we made, we tried to pool them. And then I pulled my mom in. So I, I think you had an interview with Christine. So she's my mother. <laughs> I'm really curious, Max, what those conversations look like at the dinner table. <laughs> because I, you know, and, and I'll make sure we link back to that episode with Christine. But there's always something exciting when 
you feel like you can have these dynamic conversations about things that are impacting the world and and sometimes a lot of we all feel a bit helpless when we have these conversations because you're like what can i do i'm just one person and i'm just curious just kind of fly on the wall like those early conversations with you and your and your mother um because obviously we we know we now know how much work she's you know you guys have put into this organization but i'm just curious you know what those conversations were like early on it was extremely helpful because back then you know i tried to pool all of the ideas and tried to make a business out of all of it but she said hey why don't we take a part of it and and sort of create like a nonprofit aspect where where you focus just on building a network and she had a lot of experience with that because she had uh, actually created a non-for-profit linking german businesses and companies in southeast asia 10 years prior or so, helping like German industry expand to Southeast Asia and building a nonprofit network for that and doing non-governmental communications and stuff like that. And so she she had a lot of experience in, in how to set that up from a legal, legal perspective. And um, then she just got really excited about the topic of, of vertical farming and sort of like stuck around and now she is leading it on her own more or less. <laughs> And I'm actually, I actually stepped out like four years ago, operationally, at least. Um, I mean, we still chat about the topic at, over dinner, obviously, whenever we see each other, which is not that often anymore at the moment, but the, the conversation always shifts to vertical farming at some point in the dinner conversation. Max, if you had to, you, you spent a lot of time and we talked, we touched upon it within your conversation with Christine about you know, the, the origins and some of the things that were accomplished there. But I'm curious from your perspective as a co-founder and, and advisory board member for the association, what were some of the takeaways for you? What were the, some of the things that you discovered or didn't know at the time? And, and as you were learning more and, and working with these companies, you know, what were some of the aha moments for you? I think what was interesting back then is everyone was sort of like focused on the sustainability potential of vertical farming and how it uses less water and you need less food miles and less you know, fertilizer and it's more productive per, per square meter and all of these topics. No one was really looking at the full picture of the complete life cycle analysis. Everyone was only focusing on the usage phase of one of these farms. And obviously, yes, in the usage phase, you're more efficient and you're better. But looking at the entire life cycle is actually what needs to happen if you want to talk about sustainability and avoid people getting into the greenwashing area. So I think that's something where over the years now I've so it's sort of like opened my eyes a bit as to yes, vertical farming has potential, but it's nowhere close to where it needs to be to actually be sustainable, at least how the majority of us are doing it around the world. And I think the other side is that back then I always thought, okay, it's this huge thing and there's this huge market developing, but you know, it was so niche nothing was really happening it was a handful of people like sort of tinkering around uh, and now it's actually developing into an industry but it took 10 years to get there back then it was sort of a you know, couple of people tinkering around and getting their hands dirty and trial and error and now it's it really is a, a multi-billion dollar industry but it's also nowhere close to the potential where it could one day be i think we're still in the very early days, even though we're 10 years down the road now. Yeah. And it's, what's been fascinating is, is the front row seat you've had because of your early interest and, and 
and obviously in no small part because of your your parents interest in sort of creating a life for themselves and for their children that most kids in western world will never get to experience you know to see the perspectives of, of how big populations of this globe live in terms of poverty access to fresh food fresh water a lot of things that we take for granted here and i think i i can't imagine how that could have not had had an, an impact on you and, and in terms of how you see the world how you think about coming up with solutions so it, it seems inevitable i don't know how much of entrepreneurial blood that runs through your family as well but I'm, I'm curious now as you start to think about the origin stories you're working you've worked with all these different organizations you've had all this experience what makes you think that this is something now that you want to tackle for yourself uh, and step into the world of, of starting a business and, and what that looks like in the early days yeah good question so uh, in, in terms of entrepreneurial blood running through my veins, I think I have quite a bit of that because my dad's an entrepreneur, my grandpa was an entrepreneur, my mom's an entrepreneur. So I think that was sort of a, a given that I would probably end up that way at some point. But actually, around the same time when I started discussing all of these ideas about vertical farming with my mother back then, having like had an overview of what was going on in the in the space back then the majority was either focused on building industrial scale farms to produce uh, food for large cities or for supermarkets and the the other part was focusing purely on the research aspect of it and no one was really trying to make use of the benefits that vertical farming had to offer and bringing that right to the point of or as close as possible to the actual point of consumption so into people's homes and that's how the idea for agri-evolution really got started is trying to take the benefits and cutting out the entire supply chain if possible or the the, the entire food supply chain and then bringing that little mini vertical farm into your kitchen or living room to reduce the food miles into food steps so that was really the, the idea behind it. And yeah, then obviously it took a long time to get to get to where we are today, but we can get into that in a sec, of course. Uh, being an entrepreneur myself, and obviously, you know, the, one of the things you learn early on as an entrepreneur, and, and this, is, this might be a lesson that you were able to shortcut because of your family experience, is you have to be comfortable with failure. <laughs> and as entrepreneurs, they teach you, you know, the first time you fail, you fall on your face, you sort of sit there in the mud and you're like, oh, why did this happen to me or what did I do wrong? And I think the more you have those experiences, the more really what you learn as an entrepreneur is how to get up faster, <laughs> how to get up and dust yourself off and be like, OK, that didn't work on to the next one. And, and that didn't work. And then and then you, you build up this resilience and you sort of like I, I think I've heard it described as you're able to sort of like fail forward. <laughs> you know, just keep reiterating, reiterating. And I'm wondering in those early days, how many different ideas you had for what you thought agrolution would, would be before it ended up becoming what it, what it is now? Yeah, it took some time. And yes, it's a constant learning process. So I wouldn't even call it failures. I would just call it a lot of little learning steps along the way. And Fail forward is a nice way of expressing it. I can relate to that. I think the first couple of years were very slow because I had zero experience. It was the first company that I had founded. And also how I got into founding, it was really random or fate or whatever you want to call it. 
because I just started talking to a lot of uh, friends and, and peers and family about the topic of, of vertical farming and trying to build a miniature vertical farm in the shape of a consumer appliance. Got reconnected with a good friend of mine who I used to play basketball with when I was a lot younger. And he had a background in mechatronics and mathematics. And his hobby was visualizing things in, in 3D software. So I told him about the idea and he was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to try to render something so you can show people what you <laughs> <Okay>. mean. <laughs> um, and then through another friend of mine, we got introduced to a, a business angel who was his boss at the time. And he liked the idea and said, hey, I'll give you guys 10,000 euros if you start a company, if you think you can build a prototype with, 10 to, with 10K. And we were like super excited. Yeah, of course, we're going to be able to do that. <laughs> And that's why we founded the company. So we really had no idea what we were getting into back then. And then we started taking part in, obviously 10K was not close, not nearly enough to actually develop a product. So we started taking part in like startup competitions and student competitions. And this was all like next to university. We did this on the weekends and evenings. And, and then we became runner up at Thought for Food in 2013. Yeah, talk a little bit about that because I I, I saw I saw I saw a little bit of that uh, video on YouTube. So I'm curious how that opportunity came about, which in and itself is exciting. And then obviously you start to get a little nervous about like, okay, how do we prepare for this? And so I'm I'm curious if you could talk about how it came about, and then internally as a team, how you decided you would prepare for it, and then we can talk about like you know, the result you had. Sure. See, I was actually, the student competition Thought for Food was recommended to, to me by one of my teachers at university, actually. And because they got wind of what I was thinking about and they said, hey, why don't you apply here? It would be good publicity for the university and uh, will probably help you in your business iteration process. And so, you know, with, without, again, without really thinking about it, we just signed up and took part. And then we got into the final, the round of the final 10 and got, I think, a couple thousand dollars back then to build a prototype for the pitch on stage. And then we had like a camera team come visit us uh, and we did a whole video <laughs> shoot while we were trying to build prototypes. And then we were all, all invited to Berlin to, to pitch at the competition. And that was super exciting. It was the first time I was on stage and presenting the idea. And there was a jury that gave feedback. And there was actually someone in the jury that said, hey, why don't you focus on making the appliance cheaper and sort of like add an espresso-like revenue model behind it. I saw that comment. Yeah, that's the part that I saw when the feedback from the judges. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that then completely shifted my perspective of, of the business model behind it, because back then we were always thinking about, okay, we have to sell a couple of these units to make revenue. But then we started understanding, okay, that's not really what it's about. The business model would be to sell units cheap to get an installed base of appliances out there to then sell um, consumables for these appliances. Um, and that completely shifted my mind. And then based on that idea, we started developing a new pitch and then we started actually raising the first seed or pre-seed round and raised our couple, our first couple hundred thousand euros back then. And then uh, I was at the point where I said, okay, this is so exciting. This is what I've always wanted to do is like build my own thing. And I actually decided to drop out of university at that point, which was 
looking back at it, probably very stupid and risky. But at the <laughs> yeah. time, it felt like the right thing to do. And then we, I moved back to Germany and we started hiring the first people, started renting an office and then very quickly almost ran out of money and then started raising a follow-on round, raised a couple million and actually had the opportunity to exit the company back then. We got an offer from a, a kitchen appliance company very early, but we were so convinced that what we were doing was the right thing and we wanted to do it our way that we declined and then started yeah. raising more capital and started going down the venture capital route and building it on our own. That's a pretty bold move on a couple of fronts. Number one, des deciding that uh, you have the belief in what you're building and the passion and the drive and, and maybe seeing this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to, to, to forego college. Uh, I'm curious if that was a challenging conversation at home, <laughs> but I think given your, your family's experience, maybe not so much. Not so much, actually. They encouraged me. They were like, yeah, go for it. You, you could always go back to university if you fail. Yeah, that's true. You can. Yeah. So they, they were very encouraging. They supported me big time. I actually moved back in with my parents at the time because I didn't have any money. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of people that can that are listening that can relate to that. Yeah, we moved into my parents' garage with the startup, actually. And then we started from there for the first year. And again, the, the story of the garage startup is is one that's very familiar to uh, Americans, you know, when, when they think about how some of these tech companies like uh, HP and uh, and Apple got started, they got started in garages as well. So you're in pretty good company there. And then the decision to, you know, forego, you know, giving up the company because you had a belief in your vision in what it is you wanted to build. So, you know, congratulations on, on sticking with that. And I'm sure that wasn't an easy decision to make as well. So I'm curious for, for folks that are just learning like your origin story, learning the story of Agrolution, how would you describe, you know, let's bring us to current date. What, how would you describe your, your current offerings and, and who you serve? We've basically invented this personal vertical farming product category, I would say. It's a home appliance in sort of the size of a dishwasher with two layers. You can grow up to nine different plants per layer, so 18 different plants in the entire product. And it takes care of the entire growing process from seed to harvest, so provides the right climate, the right light, automated watering. There's an app that comes with it that acts as the user interface. So you as a customer don't really need any experience or prior knowledge in growing plants, but it gives you tips and tricks and how to go about it. You get push notifications when things are ready to harvest. You can reorder consumables. And we've also in, yeah, invented a thing called a seed bar, which is a consumable with seeds inside. So it's a preceded uh, substrate. And we ship that dry to your doorstep, either on demand or in a subscription. And then people just plant whatever they want from basil to arugula to chard to uh, now chilies and tomatoes. Um, any, we have about 45 different products that we offer at the moment. So it's this entire ecosystem basically that we provide the, the one, one stop shop or the one one size fits all solution for growing your stuff at home. We've really spent a hell of a lot of time and resources on making it as easy as possible to use from a user experience perspective, for people to have fun, to not fail, 
to always have success in, in growing fresh stuff. And the products look amazing, taste amazing, and the success rate is very, very high. And that's why I think we've had a lot of very positive reviews and happy customers that we've built over the past of the, of the last over the past three years. We've only started shipping the products actually in, in 2019. So it took us six years to actually develop this product ecosystem. And we're now 75 people working on this. So it's, there's a, a lot of, a lot of time that's gone into making it work seamlessly. When you think about that time frame, Max, what, what were some of the things where you were having, where it took more time for you to make decisions about whether it's product market fit, whether it's you know, when you start talking about appliances, you, you get into a whole nother world of manufacturing, you know, because you also have to make the appliance look nice and function. At the same time, you have to grow something that people will enjoy and that's delicious. So I feel you have like a, a lot of like competing challenges and, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, you don't have to name them all, but over this course of those six years, what were some of the decision points where you had to make some tough decisions about, you know, which, which was the right path for you moving forward? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge was really trying to get the hardware work together with the software and able to control biology because if outdoor use, you plant a seed and then you hope it grows and sometimes the weather is good, sometimes it's bad and sometimes the sun is more intense, sometimes it's less intense. But actually like making all the actuators and sensors work together in the machine in a controlled environment because it's not an open system. It's actually a closed, like a little miniature controlled environment farm with a very high planting density. So we've put a lot of effort into developing our own LEDs, developing our own climate control, even some of the sensors we've developed and sort of getting that loop uh, to work between hardware, software to control biology, that that was the most complicated aspect. And then having an easy to use and simple to manufacture consumable that comes with it was also complicated. I think the easiest part of it all was probably the app in the end. And now thinking about it, it's always funny, you know, because I have other people in amongst friends and that are also founders of companies and some of them build apps. And they have a company that builds apps with 20, 30, 40, sometimes more people. And all they do is build an app. And our app is also nice and people love using it, but that's like a tiny fraction of what we do. Then we have mechanical engineers and software engineers and plant scientists and marketing and design and customer success and operations and finance. You know, we've sort of really like built an entire miniature company that does everything from the beginning of the supply chain to the finished product in the end. And then a big, big part of what we've spent time on is industrializing the product to make it cheap to produce or affordable to produce and going through yeah, finding someone that can manufacture something like this in Europe at an affordable price. That was that took a long time. And then getting all of these processes right, like sourcing hundreds of components to then actually build the thing and get it certified and ship it and make sure that everything you ship always looks nice and works in the end. And the manufacturing or industrialization of it was a very steep learning curve. And then at the same time, building a company and hiring, hiring people and 
I had zero experience in that as well. But I think now, like ten years, looking, it's been almost ten years. It's we're in our in our tenth. No, sorry, in April it was nine. It was nine years. So you just learn along the way, and you fail, and you iterate, and you test a new thing, and it's a super exciting journey. Journey. It doesn't really get boring. How have you grown as a, a leader? I mean, this is your first project or this is your first company that you, where you're, you know, you had a lot of experience with organizations, but there's something different when you are like, you know, the in, in charge of making the decisions. And and, and granted, you, you build a, a very solid team, but I'm just curious what that journey has been like for you leading the company and then what, what, what some of the lessons or relationships with mentors that have helped you along the way. A lot of things. So maybe something to highlight is how critically important culture is and building culture and hiring the right people. And the other thing is probably communication, that everything succeeds or fails with right communication and setting up the right processes for communication and making sure that people speak up and you have a, you don't have too much of a hierarchical structure but people since you're a small group of people and there are lots of different competencies that everyone can really work within their competency and make the decisions or at least suggest or make recommendations within their expertise because it doesn't really make sense for for myself or philip who leads the technical aspect to micromanage everyone and think you know since we've been doing this the longest and we're the leaders we need to make the shot call the shots and make the decisions but that we actually empower people to become leaders themselves and then sort of like build a second row beneath us uh, of, of young leaders and managers that then, again, encourage the people within their teams to develop themselves. And we were all very young people. I mean, some of the, the people that we hired in, in the very beginning, like our head of software, Jacob, for example, he's been around for nine years now. And he's gone through that entire learning process with us. And he now has one of the biggest teams in the company and is, has become a leader himself. So that was a very interesting journey. It's like learning to deal with people and how important communication is in that aspect. Part of the product offering is towards homes, but also kitchens, because you've got Plant Cube and Plant Cube Living and Plant Cube Kitchen. Can you talk a little bit about the, the idea of how you support those different markets and any and all strategy or approach as you're starting to serve those different markets? Yeah, for sure. So we started out with the Plant Cube Kitchen. That was the first product that we brought to market beginning of 2019. Back then, we were marketing as an appliance that you could either build in or integrate into, into your kitchen or use standalone. You could sort of do it would fulfill both functions but it was made within the right dimensions that you could integrate it, but you didn't have to because we didn't want to limit ourselves on purely the, the market of new kitchens that were being built. And then over the last years, we've put a lot of resources into developing a completely freestanding unit. So that's why now the Plant Cube Kitchen is positioned as an appliance that you build in, and we sell that through retailers in in Europe. So people that buy a new kitchen, they can like have that appliance integrated seamlessly into their kitchen and to not limit ourselves and to also open it up to a lot more people. 
we've developed a completely new appliance called the Plant Cube Living, which is a, a freestanding unit. It's the focus there was really making it as accessible as possible, not only in terms of not having to integrate it, but also in terms of the price point. So we were able to reduce the price from uh, 3,000 euros where our premium unit, the Plant Cube Kitchen, is at to below 1,000 euros now, which makes it, I think, way more affordable and accessible to a lot of people. Yeah, the other nuance of the, the Plant Cube living is that it comes with a very nice finishing. So the, the unit is a bit taller and it's less deep, so you can place it nice um, on a wall or something. Uh, and it has a, a fabric finishing on the outside so you can get it either as a as a light gray or a dark gray version with fabric so it, it also looks nice in your living room you don't have to place it into a kitchen very very beautiful units thank you <laughs> and and so what's been the response so far and how much of the feedback that you get from existing clients are you using to continue to iterate the product We've actually tried to loop in our customers very closely. So sort of like a customer feedback journey for a period of a couple of months where we worked very closely with a couple of customers that were able to give feedback on the entire user journey and then took all of that feedback into developing this new product, the Plant Cube Living. And we also iterated on the Plant Cube Kitchen. For example, initially in the early days, you could only plant four different varieties per layer. And then I think people somehow felt limited by that. So now we have nine per layer. We expanded the portfolio a lot. Uh, we completely redid the app based on user feedback and also things like the light pollution that you have in your living room or in your kitchen from one of these appliances was a bothering aspect to, to some customers. So we completely rid, redid the front and sort of have like yeah, dark tinted glass now. So not that much light gets out of the appliance anymore. Noise was a topic. So we exchanged the entire, or rebuilt the entire climate system. LEDs were a topic. So we redid those to make them more energy efficient. So, I, yeah, we work very closely based on customer feedback and they can also recommend plants, for example, that they like to grow. And then we add them or we start testing them in our lab, which then takes a couple months. And then once we're happy with the quality and the yield and the taste, then uh, they get released to customers. And we're, we're starting to build like a, an early feedback group of customers that get to trial new things before we then launch them to the entire customer base. Now that we're having a growing customer base to to do that um, and i think that's the right approach because the first product we wanted to build we sort of like built it from our perspective and how we would have wanted it <laughs> and it was somewhat successful but i think now that we used all of the feedback from the customers and actually built something that the customers want and not just the team wants or i want uh, it's a lot more successful and the products also way better What's the f the footprint look like? Where what um, parts of the what countries are you in, and and what's that plan look like going forward? We we started out in Germany, then we expanded to Austria, Switzerland, Netherlands, Belgium, so Central Europe, and that's where we're still located. But obviously, the U.S. is an interesting market, so we're we're eyeing an expansion there. Yeah, sort of had like a little trial experience in the United Arab Emirates, but moved back from that market um, due to some bad experiences. 
but I think the most interesting new market that we're eyeing is, is the US. Yeah, when when that steps up and you're starting to make more inroads, definitely let's let's regroup or just reach out. I'd be interested to see, you know, what that what that plan looks like. And uh, it seems like it's if you tackle it right and with all the research you've done, you know, with with the current countries you're you're you've launched in and all this feedback, this really positive feedback that you say you're getting from your clients and they're helping you reiterate, you know, iterate the product and make it better. You know, you talked about the lighting, you talked about the sound, and I, I think. As you start to get improve the product, you'll eventually, when you do, if and when you do come to the U.S. market, I think you'll have a like a really solid product that's I think going to perform well, and I think I expect we'll get a good reaction here from the states. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, the the expectations are high for for one of these units, I think. So yeah, I think looking at this personal vertical farming market, there isn't that much competition out there yet. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens when we enter the US. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but for example, LG launched an appliance in South Korea. And it's very interesting because it's sort of like a copy of what our first iteration looked like. And we also know that they bought some of our units back in the day and took them apart. We did the same with theirs. And it's good to see that we we're still on the cutting edge of of development and, and have a lead there. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if, for example, Samsung drops an appliance or something like that. But I would say in terms of the, the startups that are out there in, in the personal vertical farming space, we're, we're, still, we're still in a comfortable situation. So it's going to be interesting to see who, who launches new products in the, in the near future. Yeah, and it's interesting what you know what they say with these types of products, or in, basically in any industry. Once you see other competitors enter the space, it really is a sign that the industry is growing, that this specific niche of it is growing, that people are having an interest in it. Because if some of the big players are expressing interest, you know who knows where that could end up. Because you seem you definitely have uh, the experience. I mean, just from your background all the, the connections you have in the industry, it feels like you definitely have first mover advantage and you're continuing to iterate. So you're, I feel like you're definitely ahead of, of where they are and where they want to be. And so the fact that you're on their radar and they're looking to copy you is, is a good sign for you. But it also keeps you know a fire lit under you and the team <laughs> to make sure you can't rest because there's always people looking to like uh, eat your lunch, as they say in the States. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, these are multi-billion dollar companies, you know, if, if Samsung moves into the space and they produce something with their marketing machinery and their capital behind them, that's, that's definitely potential competition. And same goes for, for consumer venture-backed consumer companies in the U.S. Um, I mean, some of these companies are very well funded, so it's going to be interesting to see if, if anything happens there. A couple of questions as we, as we wrap up. What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? <laughs> Probably the, the, the toughest one at the moment um, is if I would still have the same motivation doing what I'm doing if the product is purely a lifestyle product and doesn't add a, a huge benefit in terms of sustainability. Haven't been able to, to make a final conclusion on that yet though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, you are making 
inroads into this as a lifestyle product, but there could be opportunities, economies of scale, maybe down the road where you could essentially turn, you know, there's a, a, a light version of this or a version of this that, you know, has the same amount of yield, more yield at a smaller price point. Um, I'm sure you're learning a lot about what works. And, and sometimes maybe it is making inroads into it as, as a lifestyle product that gives you some of these, because if you haven't been, if you hadn't been doing all these iterations and to your point, testing, getting the, 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 the feedback from your clients, um, you wouldn't have that, that drive to make, continue to make the product better and better. So I think, you know, that could be something where you could in fact find yourselves in, a, in an opportunity to do something that, that goes beyond it as a lifestyle. But I, I definitely think you're on the right path. Thank you. It's nice to hear. How has the relationships that you've been building along these years, you know, we're, we're happy that conferences or travel is back up. So now you can have discussions with some of those peers. You did, you've mentioned folks like, um, you know, Dixon Despamier, like, like Henry Gordon Smith, that you're able to build relationships with. How important have those relationships been as you've been growing the company? And, you know, now some of these people that were, were mentors are now some of your, our colleagues now. And I'm, I'm curious what that evolution has looked like. I think in the beginning, it was super helpful to have that network, to not have to make all of the mistakes myself, but sort of learn from mistakes or trials and errors of others. And also having access to sourcing components and getting someone to consult us on LEDs or getting someone to consult on some plant science or plant disease aspect or whatever. But I think the more we shifted into this appliance category, no one really had any experience in that area. But since we partnered with, with Miele in, in 2019 with this big um, home appliance company, we sort of got that, that expertise on board through them. But I think, yeah, the more we shifted into completely this personal home appliance aspect, the less the network was really of help apart from some people that are just very good with with plants and have sort of like a, a very green thumb those are the people that I that I'm also still in touch with a lot like one of my professors from university for example Jasper Den Besten who's also on the advisory board of the AVF or Khatian Meos who was one of the founders of Plant Lab but who has a new company now and so those are definitely people that I still look up to and am in touch with a lot so Max, as we wrap up, what has you most excited if you think about the next 12 to 18 months with what you have on tap, you know, to the extent that there's stuff you can speak about at Agrolution, um, you know, as you, as you look forward, what are some of the things that you're most excited to be working on? Uh, the things that I'm most excited to be working on, I cannot talk about, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but something that's upcoming uh, that I can mention is that we're releasing uh, bunch of new seed bars with chilies and tomatoes very soon. So that's exciting that we've uh, found varieties that are small enough and provide high enough yields and consistent enough quality that we can release to the public now. Uh, so that's, that's something that's exciting. And yeah, then uh, potentially expanding to, to other regions and diversifying into more product variants down the road but those are the things that i unfortunately can't go into any detail 
We'll definitely keep us updated. We do put out a weekly newsletter on, on stuff that's happening in the space. And so as soon as you have new updates, we'd love to share them with our audience. Um, but definitely going to invite people to, to head on over to agrilution.com uh, to learn more. Is there any other places uh, folks can connect with you if they want to learn more? Well, with me personally on LinkedIn. Um, but other than that, the website is always a good resource. So if anything interesting happens or Instagram, the, the agrilution Instagram. Uh, those are probably the, the two go-to channels. We have an interesting newsletter, but it's only in German at the moment. So that's probably not that relevant for the audience. <laughs> yeah, I imagine if uh, you do have someone who can translate that, uh, there'll, there'll probably be some folks in the States or English-speaking countries that are probably curious about what, what you have uh, coming up. So that might be a, a, a good project to tackle <laughs> in the future. For sure. So the website is available in English and Instagram's in English, but I think once we officially announce that we're coming to the US, then we'll, we'll launch an English newsletter as well. Well, Max, I'm, I'm glad uh, Christine connected us. I, I I always like asking the question at the end, if there's anyone else I should be speaking to, and your name came came up quickly. And it's really exciting to see, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to stay on top of everything that's happening in the space. And there's so much happening very quickly. And, 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 and also companies like yours that have been doing this you know, slowly and, and at least quietly for me, maybe not quietly for you, but like um, making inroads into different niches. And, and you know, there's, there is no one company when it comes to um, what's happening in the vertical farming space. And I'm glad we got to tell your story. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing it. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a good conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks again to Max for coming on the show and sharing his story. I'm always appreciative of the hour that my guests spend with me on the show and opening up and talking about origin stories and what motivates them. And hopefully that inspires you, the listener, as well. Thanks to our season five title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Don't forget that I will be attending Indoor Ag Tech NYC in New York City. Uh, get on a plane Wednesday evening, so if you're going to be in town at the conference, please uh, say hi, and I'll, uh, I'd love to connect with you. Tickets still available, indooragtechnyc.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co if you're interested in learning how a podcast can be helpful for your business. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP if you want to leave a rating and a review, and we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Thanks so much for all you do to support the show, spreading the word, connecting, engaging with us on social. I really appreciate it. Tune in next week for my conversation with another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming, Stephen Eaves, CEO and founder at Volt Server. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. 